Our scripture reading comes to us this morning from Matthew chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. Ladies and gentlemen, pray with me if you would. God, this morning as we raise our voices to you, we are reminded that you are a being who transcends time and generations from the beginning of creation until that day when you will bring to a close all of history. God, we don't know of anyone or any being who is beyond the march of time, forever immortal. Only you. Only you are immune from death. Death which delimits the span of our lives and largely confines our thinking to the here and now. Yet from your word, it is clear that you control the sweep of human events. God, forgive us for those days when we convince ourselves that we are the ones who are in control. And God, forgive us also for those days when we sink into depression and anxiety because the events of our time are clearly beyond our control, leaving us then to wonder where you are. But God, you are here. You are not moved, and neither is your purpose, and neither is your kind provision for us. God, thank you for raising us to life this day. Thank you for providing for our every need. Thank you for sending your son for his finished work on the cross and for his resurrection, the first fruits of the great resurrection that we look forward to at the end of this age. God, today, give us sensitivity for the fact that you are moving in our time and in the course of human events toward that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. With that in mind, we pray that you would send your spirit over this place, over Pastor Jeff, and that our look at your word this morning would honor you and would enlighten and encourage each one of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Gary. Good morning. Great to see you. For those of you who are new this summer and you don't know who I am, <laughs> I feel like I do need to reintroduce myself. My name is Jeff Kennedy, and rumor has it I am the senior pastor of this church. But I've been gone for most of the summer because I've been on sabbatical, some well-needed vacation time as well, and I'll be back uh, next couple of weeks or so. Um, but you also heard the announcement about an evening with Sharon Kennedy in August. That is my mom. Sharon is my mom. You've heard me share snapshots of my story, my life story, but you've never heard it till you heard my mom tell it. So for those of you ladies, if you're available, if you're in town, please do come. I, have, I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little worried about what, if I wasn't worried about what she was going to say. I I guess as a 78-year-old lady, she's entitled to tell some stories about her son. So that'll be fun for those of you who want dirt. <laughs> We're going to be in the book of Ruth today. We have finished the book of Judges. 
We're going to be in the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1. And uh, so we'll be in that book over the next four weeks, and we're going to start it today. Uh, Historians have used the term Dark Ages to describe the early medieval period between the fall of the Western Roman Empire and the beginning of the Renaissance. If you remember from high school, that word just means rebirth. And it was during this cultural rebirth that the Protestant Reformation occurred. The Reformation was a spiritual revival that sparked dramatic changes and presented numerous challenges to the Catholic Church, which at that time had just become rotted through with spiritual, moral, and political corruption. And so the Reformation was this spiritual revival, this thing that God was doing to get us back to the Bible. Figures such as the fiery and implacable Martin Luther, or the studious and tireless John Calvin, or the brilliant philosopher Philip Melanchthon. These men led this cultural revolution against religious tyranny. They reemphasized the biblical doctrines of justification by faith and grace in Christ in place of the empty, unbiblical, and taxing ritualism of medieval Catholicism. The Reformers reintroduced the Bible to the masses so that people could once again have access to the Scriptures. The Reformation was, if it was nothing else, a mass literacy movement to get the Bible back into the hands of the people. And at last, the Bible could be translated in common vernaculars like German and French and eventually English, which produced the King James Version Bible of 1611. That version of the Bible became the conceptual canopy for the development of the Western world. And so the Reformation set into motion pervasive curiosity about matters of heaven, but also matters of earth, encouraging the very ethic that drove the first scientists to make their original scientific breakthroughs, and thus was born the age of science. The reform movement represents true sea change, an unstoppable shift toward something that would renew, reclaim, and redeem the old. And the humble little short book that we're looking at over the next four weeks, this little story, It is that kind of change in Israel's history. It's very similar. On one level, it just is a story about God's redeeming grace for a particular family in a very, very evil and wicked time. And as we read from Matthew chapter 1, Jesus' genealogy going all the way back to David, it is also a story about sea change. It's a story about God changing the world saving and redeeming Israel and through Israel the world through His Messiah. Let's recap where we've been so far. We learned from Pastor Pat last week that the tribes of Israel have become so thoroughly, hopelessly Canaanized that they've seemed to come almost to the point of no redemption. It is a nation fractured by sin and disloyalty to God, a country without a high king, And the result is that everybody just does whatever they want to do, whatever they think is right in their own eyes. That's the epitaph of the book. Yet in this age of moral insanity is a story about God providing for Israel's redemption. God is working in ways we often cannot see and we would never have expected. Have you found that to be true for your life? God is just working behind the scenes in ways that 
I know I cannot see him. He's working mysteriously, but he also is doing things that I would never have expected him to do. I just wouldn't do things that way. Why doesn't he ask for my advice? (laughs) So let me offer a quick overview of the book. The book uh, unfolds over four acts. So if you think of it like a four-act play, act one is the redemption from past bitterness. The redemption from past bitterness. This is the story in chapter one of God redeeming Naomi's bitterness. Act act two is redemption from Ruth's present poverty. Ruth is impoverished, and so she goes as a poor person. And according to the law of Moses, poor people can come in and just glean whatever's left over in the fields. And that's what she does. And God saves her from poverty. Act three is redemption for Naomi's family line. Naomi devises this plan. As soon as she hears about Boaz and the interaction, she devises a plan for Ruth to approach Boaz, her kinsman, to redeem her land through marriage. Ruth agrees to the plan, and Boaz agrees to accept the marriage proposal. Act four is the redemption for the nation of Israel. As we've said, Boaz's kindness to Ruth led to the birth of a son who would become the grandfather of King David through whom Jesus the Messiah would come to deliver us all from our sins. But before we get there, let's unpack the story first. Starting in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. This is during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. Uh, and so that right there tells us where we are in this story. We're still in the period of Unfortunately, we're still in the period of the judges, and understand that when you see the word famine, that usually is an indication of God's judgment. Once again, God's judgment rests on the people. According to Genesis 12 and 26, 41, 42, 47, and passages like that, usually when God sends famine, it's His judgment, it's His wrath. But why would God's judgment rest on this people and this family in particular? Verse 2. Says the man's name was uh, Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Now, what is so amazing about the providential writing of this story is that pretty much everyone's name is an archetype of what they do. So we start out with the, the, patri- the, the patron of the family, right? The patriarch. And his name is, con- consists of two Hebrew words. The first one is the word Eloi. Remember in the New Testament where Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so this word means, my God. Melech means the king. And so, for one of the first times, the only times in the book of Judges or the period of Judges, we have an acknowledgement that God is king. Someone thought to name their child that. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. Now, Malon means sickness, and Kilian means weakness. Can you imagine naming your kids that? (laughs) Come here, illness. Come here, disease. And then we have of them living in Bethlehem. The word Bethlehem is Beit Lechem, which means the house of bread, the house of abundance, the house of food. But they're experiencing a famine there. And then they go off to Moab, 
this desert wasteland. Verse 3, Naomi's husband, Eloimelech, died. And she was left just with her two sons, sickness and illness, <laughs> weakness. And her sons took Moabite women, which they weren't supposed to do, but they did. They took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah. Now, her name is very significant as well. Her name means the back of her neck. And that's going to become very, very significant as we get down in the story because when Naomi announces she's going back to Bethlehem, the house of bread, what she sees of Orpah is the back of that girl's neck as she's leaving and going back to Moab. So, very important uh, moment here. And then also Ruth, which means compassionate friend, a person who is a compassionate friend. And after they lived in Moab for about 10 years, Malon and Chilion, sickness and weakness, also died. Big shocker there. And the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. So, Naomi's return to Bethlehem, she comes back, she gets this idea, she's going to go back to Bethlehem, but she's an impoverished widow. And all she has are two Moabite daughters in tow, which is a problem. Now, the ancient Near Eastern reader sees the significance of this. What they see in this story is that she's totally destitute. She has no husband. She has no adult sons who can run her farm or inherit her land because as a woman, she can't do any of that. As a woman, she can't go and, and take on these backbreaking jobs of manual labor that the men in this world did. And so, she's utterly, utterly poor, impoverished, destitute. Her son's marriages to Moabite women were seen as a violation of Moses' law, further compounding her social isolation. Naomi hears that Bethlehem is being blessed with abundance once again, and so she sets out to return there, and it says she goes the Jericho to Jerusalem road. That road is about 70 or 80 miles. So here you have this decrepit elderly lady walking, imagine this, 70 miles at the age of 40, 41. <laughs> Sorry, in this world, that was really old. Verse 8, it says, Naomi said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. And may the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. And may the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them, and then they, they all just wept bitterly, loudly. And they said to her, we insist, we want to go back with you on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters, go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought uh, there was still a hope for me to have a husband tonight and bear sons, would, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. You see the sadness in her voice. And Naomi is confronted with the reality that as an elderly woman in this world, her life is kind of over. That's the way it was back then. She has nothing to look forward to. Now she's even going to lose her daughters-in-law. She can't provide for them. Verse 14, again, they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law, she has turned her neck. She has gone back to her people 
and to her gods, follow your sister-in-law. And here we can see Naomi's concern for her physical well-being overrides any fear she might have for the spiritual well-being of these girls. They are going back to a horrific pagan religion in Moab. It's, it's absolutely grisly, ghastly. But what's, what's the alternative? Starvation. Ruth will not leave her. And in this moment, don't miss this, Ruth makes a declaration. She makes a decision that changes her family's destiny. She replied, Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not to follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord punish me and do so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. This doesn't mean she gave her the cold shoulder. She's like, I'm not talking to you anymore. What it means is that she stopped trying to persuade her. And so in this period of the judges, known for its cruelty and tribal warfare and unfaithfulness to God, such a moment of selflessness is exceptionally rare. This self-sacrificial act, pledging loyalty to Naomi until the very end, embodies the central ethic of the Judeo-Christian faith. It remains the driving force of Christian living. Jesus said that there are only really two commands that God has for us. What are those commands? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind, all that you are. Love Him supremely above all. And then the second, Jesus said, the second commandment is like it. And the law and the prophets are summed up in these two. The second is like it. And it comes right out of Leviticus 19, which says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Treat your neighbor as you would want to be treated. Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do to you, right? And so here, Ruth's pledge to stay with Naomi to the bitter end is a rare and beautiful moment in this world of rampant idolatry and self-interest and evil. And it is the very heart of the Christian faith. It is how God has called us to act toward one another sacrificially, with sacrificial love. Verse 19, so the two of them traveled until... They came to Bethlehem, and when they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local woman ex exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. She answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why would you call me Naomi, since the Lord has opposed me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabitess, and they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi's name means sweetness, gentleness, and she says, don't call me that. Do I look sweet? Do I look like I've been taken care of? No. Call me Mara. That word means one with a bitter countenance, one with the countenance of heartbreak. And she says, that's my new name. And so there are some observations I think we see from this passage. Number one, that God is present in both abundance and scarcity. God is present in both times of prosperity and times of need. 
abundance and scarcity, difficult times and good times. And Naomi assumes that when times are good, God was with her. And she also thinks that now that times have turned bad, now that things are going wrong, clearly God has set himself against me. And this is a very human way to think, right? We, we get what we deserve. And now that times have turned difficult, she, she thinks, God is actually emptying me. God is the one causing my bitterness. God is the one who has set himself against me. And, and I just have a couple of insights relative to this idea. First of all, what she says is perfectly human, her attitude, but it's actually wrong. First, not every problem we face is a direct judgment from God for a particular sin. We tend to leap to that conclusion, don't we? We tend to go straight there. What is the lesson? What's the punishment? What is God trying to work out in me? And for sure, there are times when we disobey God's word and we experience the, nat we experience the natural consequences of doing that. But that's not really what's going on here. Jesus was asked this very question by the disciples. The disciples, they were walking along one day and they saw a blind man who had been blind from birth. Everyone knew the guy just grew up blind. And, and the disciples asked Jesus a very interesting question in the Gospel of John. They say, teacher, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, so that he was born blind? What is the underlying assumption of that question? Whatever this man is going through, this, this sort of calamity or this pain or suffering that has befallen this human being is surely due to some sin in his life, and God is now punishing him for that sin. And Jesus' response, neither. What are you talking about? No, neither. This has happened, neither this man sinned nor his parents sinned. He's not saying they've never sinned. He's saying, of course they've sinned, but he's saying that it's not a direct result. What this man is going through is not a direct result of him doing something wrong, of him going this way when he should have gone that way. But this has happened so that the power of God may be revealed in him, so that the power of God may be demonstrated in his life. Jesus taught his disciples. He says, listen, the sun shines on the evil and the good. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Both sunshine and rain, those two things were a blessing in this hot, arid land, this hot, arid world. And Jesus says, listen, God's prevenient grace is pervasive in the world. It pervades all of human life. God has given us His common grace for the common good. And so don't jump to the conclusion that just because you're in a tough spot that there is some particular sin that God is addressing in your life. Secondly, every problem we face, and I really believe this, is ultimately due to sin. So while not every problem we face is a direct judgment for a particular sin, every problem we face is ultimately due to sin. What do I mean by this? In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, this is what Paul says. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. What is he saying? Death in the human experience entered through Adam and Eve's sin, and now all have sinned and all die. He finishes his thought in Romans 8, 18 through 21. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
For the creation awaits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one that is God who subjected it, in the hope and anticipation that the creation itself will be liberated from its state of bondage and decay. Think about that for a second. What Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8 is that the whole world is in a state of bondage and decay. God's judgment on man and his judgment on the world is that we're in a state of bondage to death and decay. And now Jesus sets us free from that. Jesus liberates us from that. And so the resurrection of the children of God is the sign to the rest of the world that God is now renovating the whole world. God is going to rehaul this whole planet. And Adam's sin caused the earth to be cursed and their labor to be toilsome. Adam and Eve's sin led to our death spiritually, relationally, bodily. For from the dust you came, God says, you will return. That statement was a judgment. And we're reminded that everything from the ground under our feet to the molecules in our bodies are under a curse, subject to death and decay. New creation, when God resurrects our bodies and renovates the world we live in, is going to be literally heaven on earth. I hope you're looking forward to that. I hope that's what you have your sights set on. And in the meantime, we say with Paul in Philippians 4, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I, I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Here it is. You want to know it? Paul gives it to us. Whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I have abundance or I'm in need, I am able to endure all things through him who gives me strength. Naomi doesn't know it yet, but she's going to discover that even in the midst of her suffering and her loss and her bitterness, even in times of scarcity and poverty, God has never left her. And God has never left you. I hope you believe that today. Number two, in times of scarcity and suffering, we tend to blame God. We tend to blame God. Come on. Let's fess up. We want to know what, why God has allowed this into our life. It's just the easiest thing to ask. Look at Ruth uh, 1.13 and 2021. 20, Here's what she says. Look at it closely. Because the Lord's hand has turned against me. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has opposed me. And the Almighty has afflicted me. Who's getting the blame here for her bitterness? God is. Now, I do not believe for one second they, that Naomi is abandoning the faith of her youth. No. She is not abandoning the faith of her people. Belief in Yahweh, the one true God. And that's proven by the context because in the context, she calls him El Shaddai, which is that old Hebrew name which means the Lord Almighty or God Almighty. That's what it means. So she knows even in the midst of her suffering, even in the midst of her bitterness and her loss, she knows who the Almighty One is. She knows who to call on to change the situation. If anyone can, it's the Lord Almighty. But He's also to blame, isn't He? He's also put me in this situation. He's the one that dumped me out and emptied me out. 
I want to tell you, you cannot avoid situations in life that bring you grief and temporary bitterness. Temporary bitterness is a season we all go through in life. I've had people close to me that I discovered were actually betraying me, betraying my confidence. And that is one of the most challenging things that you and I will face. Someone who is close to you, a a betrayal, that's one of the hardest things to go through. To discover that all the information you were given, this so-called counselor, this person who you thought was a, a wise counselor in your life, they were just collecting that information so they could weaponize it against you. That is a really difficult thing to go through. That can be soul crushing. And so God wants us to know that in those times when we feel bitter and we ask God why, Why have you allowed this into my life? God is going to help us make make it through that problem. You say, well, sure, but how do I make it through? And that's the thing you have to go through. There's no way around it. You got to go through it. Remember Job's story. Job is famous for suffering, right? He He is a person who is famous in the Bible for maybe having, other than Jesus Christ, maybe having suffered more than anyone else. And there is Job. Now, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. It's older than the book of Genesis. And so, it's this old, ancient poetry, like ancient Near Eastern poetry. And in that book, it's very easy to think, well, yeah, the question in the book is, why do the righteous suffer? That's a good question. That's a question all of us would ask. Why do the righteous suffer? But that's not really the important question. Because when we get to the end of the book, what do we find? In Job's last two or three speeches, he very eloquently tells God just how righteous he's been. He tells God, I have not sinned against you. I gave to the poor. I did everything a righteous person was supposed to do in three powerful, eloquent speeches. And then God comes to answer him. And first out of the whirlwind, he answers Job's friends, his compatriots who've sat there and tried to philosophize about what God is doing. And God's first response is to them and to say, who are are these ignorant voices that presume to pry into my divine mind, (laughs) right? I mean, what he's saying is, who are these dummies who are talking like this? And so he rebukes them. But then in chapter 40, he rebukes Job. And he says to Job in verses 6 through 9, he says, Why have you so often accused me? Why have you put the blame for your bitterness on me? Why do you accuse me of being unjust? Turns out, Job's not so righteous after all. He accuses the God whose mind he cannot, the depths of whose mind he cannot plumb. And so, Job is brought to repentance before God to confess his sins. Half a dozen times in that book, Job says, you, Lord, why has the Lord made me bitter? Why has he brought such bitterness on me? And God comes at the end of the book to redeem him. And this is where we find Naomi. She is bitter. There's no denying that. Her life is empty. She's been emptied out, undoubtedly. But she hasn't lost her faith in the Lord Almighty. We see a glimpse of her hope in the next chapter. Number three, I think the last thing we see in the story is that God is gracious to us even when we falter. Even when we fail, 
Even when our tendency, we give in to the temptation to blame God, even though we cannot know all that God is doing and, and we can't possibly know how God is working all these things out, even when we fail, God in His grace is still supervising our journey. He's still carrying us along unto glory, right? No doubt Naomi is struggling here. In our fallenness, in our limited understanding, in our ignorance of God's ways, we, like Naomi and Job, and like the disciples, remember the disciples in the boat? They have to go wake Jesus up in the middle of the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and they're like, Lord, don't you care if we drowned? What a silly question. Jesus is in the boat. But that's how we feel. Don't you care what I'm going through? Where are you? What are you doing? Why have you brought this to me? And most of all, when will this end? When will this be over? And I have to confess, there are times in my life when I have lashed out in anger to God for difficult times that have been brought into my life. And I'll tell you one that's really embarrassing. And I'm embarrassed because I like to think that the Lord rewards my faith but sometimes the Lord is just gracious to me in the midst of my unbelief. And I was driving from Dave Smith Motors in Kellogg, Idaho, back to my home in Post Falls, Idaho. I used to work there for a little while, and I was driving over the pass, the mountain pass, and as I came over the mountain pass, I was so angry with God in my prayers with the Lord. I, I was so angry at Him, I started hitting the steering wheel. Why have you done this to me? Why did this person do this to me? Why did you allow that? Why am I just so incinerated right now? It seems like it's your fault. And I mean, I was just hollering in the car. And the very next week, the Lord totally delivered me. I mean, the answer to my prayers came the next week. And God just completely took me in a new direction. And it was so amazing. And I was so floored. I was so humbled that the Lord in His grace answered the need of my heart and the cry of my heart even though I sinned against him by blaming him. I didn't see what he was doing. And so God in his mercy and his grace, is, he's patient, he's long-suffering. And unlike me, he has all wisdom and he has all knowledge and he knows how all this is going to work out. And unlike me, he knows exactly how everything is going to unfold for his glory. And this is what Paul tells us. This is a promise in the scriptures. Remember where it is, Romans eight twenty-eight. He says, we know that all things work together for the good. What's the good? Us being, in context, it's us being conformed into the image of God's Son in life and in death. Us being conformed to the image of Jesus, the image of God's Son in life and in death. So that's the good. And we know that all, all things work together for that good, the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Listen, if there was one thing in your life that God did not or could not work out for your good, God is a liar. And the Bible says, God says, I am not a man that I should lie. Uh, James tells us that God doesn't lie. He's not even capable of lying. So God tells us right here that he works all things out for our good, for the good of those who he has bestowed his love upon and who love Him, and who are called. Ephesians 1.11, this is a big one. He says, in Him we, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out almost everything. <laughs> is that what it says? 
It doesn't say almost everything. It doesn't say most things or half things. It says everything. He works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. Understand, God works everything out according to his plan, and his plan is to bring us and carry us along to resurrection glory. That's what God does. That's his promise. So the author of the book of Ruth knows something that Naomi doesn't know. And it's something that we know that she doesn't know. The author knows that God is working this whole thing out for the good of a person who is literally in the midst, in the throes of her pain and blaming God for it. And God has orchestrated all these events. So Naomi and Ruth return at the beginning of harvest season. Just at the right time, you see God's providential hand right there. They don't miss a beat. And the story really does mark sea change. The whole direction of Israel from this point forward, this point forward, and the direction of the world is going to change forever. Isn't that good news? Well, aren't you glad to be in this book? How refreshing. Will you pray with me? Let's close our time in prayer. Bow your head, close your eyes as the worship team comes back up, and I want to ask you to make these prayers that I'm going to pray, make them your prayers. Say them in your heart. God, we, we thank you. Thank you for being present and never leaving us in times when we lack, in times when you've provided, in times of abundance and in times of need. We know that ultimately, God, even though this world is cursed because of sin, the very ground under our feet, the very dust in our flesh and bones, we know that you have redeemed it through the blood, the shed blood of Christ on a cross, and that you've defeated death hell and the grave, and we have that hope, and we thank you that you're with us in the midst of whatever season we are facing. Thank you. And God, when trouble comes and we are tempted to jettison our faith, to allow our bitterness to spread and deepen and take control of our minds, will you graciously pull us back from that? Give us a spark of hope and and warm our hearts again to new possibilities. Lord, will you do that? Give us a spark of hope and warm our hearts again to faith and new possibilities. And God, we are so grateful this morning for your gracious sustaining of us that you have worked everything out for the good of your people. And we confess that we have not believed your promises, your great and precious promises And that we have dwelled on our circumstances and we've dwelled on the here and now. Instead of meditating, instead of ruminating and thinking about just how great you are and the fact that you don't lie and the fact that you're carrying us along no matter what season we find ourselves in. God, we thank you for being gracious to us even in our anger. For being gracious to us even in times when we feel like we just have an ember of faith left. Thank you, God. Thank you for first loving us. Thank you for choosing us and choosing to bestow your love on us. We praise you for that this morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And may faith rise in our hearts. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.